brothers, it's great to be with you today. It is, uh, I'm just very, very excited about today, and uh, it is a privilege for me to be here and uh, for me to be involved. Uh, the assignment that, uh, that Carlos has given me uh, today, under the umbrella, uh, under this umbrella theme of fighting for godliness, uh, the, the assignment that I have is actually to unpack what it means to fight for the gospel, uh, or perhaps we could put it this way, fighting to keep the gospel central in our lives as men. And uh, so we're going to do that today by, uh, by studying Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm glad to see you all reaching for your Bibles. Uh, praise God. I love the rustling pages of God's Word. So the more noise you want to make as you open up to Ephesians 2, uh, the better. Uh, this is a passage that many of you probably know quite well. In fact, some of you probably have verses 8 and 9 committed to memory. Should we test that out? For it is by grace. That was pathetic. That was pathetic. That was just pathetic. The whole focus of this passage and therefore of my exposition is going to be the power and grace of God. So can we do a little bit better than that? Yeah? For it is by grace... <laughs> All right, Lord willing, we'll have it committed to memory by the end. How's that? Good, good. All right, well, if you're all at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, let me read these verses and we'll tuck in together. And you, that throws us backwards. We're going to go back into chats 1 a little bit in just a few minutes, but just keep that in mind. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. You should circle that. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a passage that drives home the wonderful truth of God's power and grace. So the main idea running all the way through these verses is the power and the grace of God. It's a passage with an enormous contrast in it. 
See, what Paul does here is to contrast our former condition or our former state outside Christ before conversion with its transformation by the grace of God. Right? So what he does is he holds up this contrast. This is what you were before you became a Christian, before conversion, when you were outside Christ. This is now who you are in Christ because of the grace of God. He unpacks the contrast between that former condition outside Christ and its transformation by the grace of God by which we now become new creatures in Christ. In other words, you were lost, but by grace you are now rescued and restored. And in the context of Ephesians, the power and grace of God are what is being highlighted here. Look with me, if you will, toward the end of chapter 1. Because in Paul's thanksgiving and prayer, he has been talking about the greatness of God's power. So just, just drop down to chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. We're going to read 18 to 21. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, state, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, and how do we see this immeasurable power and great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, here in chapter 1, having spoken of the power at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and exalted him above all rule and authority and power and dominion, Paul now shows us that that power is at work in the lives of the Ephesians. This is kind of how it goes. The, 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 Paul highlights the power and the grace of God in raising Jesus from the dead. And then, in a way, he gives an illustration of that, that power and that grace of God in the fact that God had transferred them from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. Or, to use the language of these verses, he had brought them from death to life. Why is it so important that we live gospel-centered lives? Because it's only in the gospel that we are converted, new creations in Christ, and it's only in the gospel that we can live the Christian life. It's only by the grace and the power of God that we can live the Christian life. Do you see what Paul's saying? That you may know, that you may, that you may understand, that you may appreciate the power and the grace of God, that power, that power raised Jesus from the dead. That power and grace brought you, Christian believer, from death to life. And therefore, that power and grace enables you to be the man that God tells you to be in his word. God does it all. It's wonderful news. Do you see why we need to keep the gospel central in our lives and central in this fight? 
See, this kind of summary of the gospel that we have here in Ephesians 2, 1 1 through 10 reminds us that we are what we are only by the grace and the power of God. And therefore, we live as who we are only by the power and the grace of God. So in this passage, we see the importance of keeping the gospel central both from Paul's own model of doing that very thing, keeping the gospel central, and from everything that he unpacks about the gospel here in Ephesians 2. You see, Paul always kept the gospel central, both in his ministry and in his life. Remember, he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians that his ministry among them That in his ministry among them, he had decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in his own life, Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Brothers, the only way that we become Christian believers is by the grace of God in the gospel. And the only way that we live out the Christian life is by the grace of God in the gospel. In other words, we're preaching the gospel to non-Christians for their conversion. And we're preaching the gospel gospel to Christians for their growth. We never move on from the gospel. We must be grounded in the gospel. Paul keeps the gospel central here as he writes to the Ephesians. His entire emphasis in this passage is on the grace and the power of God. In other words, Paul is intent on magnifying the grace of God to us in the gospel, both for Christian conversion and for Christian living. And that's why it's so important to keep the gospel central. God has saved us by his grace and we live a life that pleases him by his grace. And prayerfully, you will be fully persuaded of that from God's word by the time we get to the end. Uh, So let's have a look at these verses under three headings. Our, Our condition, our condition before conversion when we were outside Christ, first of all. It's transformation only by the grace of God, and then some of the implications for us uh, as followers of Jesus. So first of all, our condition then. So what was our spiritual condition or our former state before we became Christians? What is the miserable condition of people outside Christ? Well, Paul tells us very clearly in 1 to 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There it is. That is the description of everybody outside Christ. The description of the Ephesians before their conversion the description of you and I before our conversion, the description of all those separated from God outside Christ. And we learn three things about the condition. We were dead, our condition before we were converted. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. 
right? We were rebels, Paul tells us, rebelling against God because we had rejected him and were following our own desires and following the ways of the world and following the spiritual forces of evil. Trespasses here is an active word. It refers to things that we have done that are wrong. It, it is, it's overstepping the mark, if you like. A breaking of God's law in a whole variety of ways. Sins, on the other hand, refer, refer more to the good things that we failed to do. Uh, failing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and failing to love our neighbors as ourselves. So in a way, these two words, trespasses and sins together, really show us what we might call sins of commission on the one hand and sins of omission on the other hand. So it wraps all of our rebellion up in these Words and these two words together actually tell us that we were both rebels on the one hand and failures before God on the other. And the consequence of this, Paul says, is that we were dead and under God's judgment. You see, sin, disobedience, rebellion is a killer. That was our position. Outside Christ. That was the position we were in. This kind of living death. You see in verse 2 Paul says. This is how we once walked. Or, or how we used to live. Before God converted us. By his grace. Because of the finished work of Jesus. So physically we were alive. Mentally engaged. Physically active. Even healthy perhaps. Physically, but spiritually, we were dead because we were out of touch with the God who made us, separated and alienated from Him. And to be in that condition is not really to be alive at all. We were dead. It's the very opposite of what we were made for. God made us like Him and for Him. For the blessed world of right relationships. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with each other. Right relationship with his world. The Bible word for that is blessed. That web of those three primary relationships. We were made for right relationship with God. We were made by him. Accountable to him. Made for right relationship with him and with each other. And with his world. But as John Calvin calls us, we're a glorious ruin. Ruined because of sin. You see, the tragedy is that in our natural state, we live without him, rebelling against him. And all of us, without exception, lived this way, as verse 3 makes clear. The end of verse 3. Like the rest of mankind. So we were dead. Paul says, not only were we dead, but we were dominated as well. We were held captive. And he unpacks three things here as well. We were held captive by the world. We were following the course of this world, its pressure, its fashions, its values. Living with no reference to Jesus in darkness and in evil. We were dominated by the devil, described here as the prince of the power of the air. We were subjects to him and his will that he exercised over us 
in this fallen condition. And we were dominated by the flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. No matter what sort of show we may have put on outwardly to look respectable, the reality was that we were dominated by sinful desires and thoughts. We were dominated by all of these things in our dead condition. Not only were we dead and dominated, however, Paul finally tells us that we were to be destroyed. Do you see that there in verse 3? We were by nature children of wrath. We were the objects of God's wrath, born in that condition, appointed to original sin. The, The children of God's wrath. God's wrath relates to his absolute goodness. And holiness, and it, re- it refers to his settled, controlled, predictable, irreversible opposition to human sinfulness. And we were under God's wrath. See, his wrath is his refusal to compromise with evil, disobedience, and wickedness, and his determination that it shall be destroyed. We were to be destroyed. We were once objects of that wrath as the rest of mankind. All people without exception. Outside of Christ, this is people's spiritual condition. People remain dead, separated from God, dominated, by the world, the devil, and the flesh, and to be destroyed. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why we need the gospel. If any of you have come this morning and you are not followers of Jesus, if you are not followers of Jesus, and you're investigating this whole Christian thing, you're trying to figure out this guy Jesus, we are so, so, so glad that you're here. In fact, I would love to talk to you more than any of the other guys in here. You are very, very welcome. May I be very frank and clear with you? This is your condition outside Christ. This is your condition. And you are in desperate need of Jesus' rescue. So please listen in very, very clearly. Because we're going to go on to the wonderful grace of God in a minute. You see, this was the spiritual condition of the Ephesians before their conversion. It was our spiritual condition before our conversion. And the thing that it drives home is the complete inability of the sinner to do anything about it. There is nothing in the sinner that is capable of responding to God. We were dead. A dead thing can't make itself alive. A dead thing can't respond. We cannot fix this. We cannot fix this. You see, the gospel is entirely devoid of flattery towards you and towards me. It refuses to flatter us. It simply shows us the reality of our condition. This was your condition outside Christ. If you don't know him today, this is your condition. You are dead, you are dominated, and you are to be destroyed. 
Therefore, because this was our condition, we stood in great need of rescue. Because we couldn't do it ourselves, we stood in great need of rescue. And that's the wonderful transformation that takes place by the grace of God. Because God made us alive in Christ, all his work and all his grace. You see, we need to remember that Paul is writing to Christian believers. He's giving this summary of the gospel in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 to Christian believers. Writing to Christian believers and he reminds them of their past, their 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 former condition or state in order to show them the magnificence of the present and the future. You see what Paul is doing? Remember I said one of the things we're going to see as we walk through is Paul's model of keeping the gospel central. Do you see how he's keeping the gospel central? Guys, the power and the grace of God is enormous. The power of God raised Jesus from the dead. The power and grace of God took you from being dead and made you alive, the power and grace of God enables you to live in the good works that God's prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And he gives the model to us because he's writing to Christians and keeping the gospel central. Because it's only by the gospel that we're restored to right relationship with God in Christ and it's only through the gospel that we can live trusting in his grace uh, to obey his word, the Bible. Remember, he has prayed that they would understand the greatness of God's power. And he is showing them here that that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has also given them life. And so the turning point in these verses are those two little words that I told you to circle at the beginning of verse 4. But God... The power of God raised Jesus from the dead. The power and grace of God gave you life. Therefore, the power and grace of God will enable you to live his way. To be the man that he tells you and I to be in his word. But God, here is the sovereign grace and power of God. Come with me to 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice God did something. But God. God did something. This is God's gracious and merciful action. There is no condition or merit in us. It is not in any way connected to our performance or our potential. He has rescued us out of his sheer mercy from his own kindness. It is his grace entirely, his unmerited favor. This all has to do with what God is like. You see, God is loving. And so he did this, we're told, because of the great love with which he loved us. The great unanswerable question of the Bible is, why does God love us? 
we're not told. We're just told that God does love us. In other words, the explanation of the love of God is the love of God. He loves us. He is loving and because of his great love with which he loved us. He is merciful. In fact, we're told here that he is rich in mercy. He delights to show mercy. He is rich in it. So he doesn't give us what we deserve. He is gracious. So both in verse 5 and in verse 8, we're told that by grace you have been saved. Again, showing that this transformation has nothing to do with my deserving anything or with my initiating anything. It is the goodness of God unrelated to my merit, but intimately related to my need, whereby he does for me what I could have never done for myself. He gives me what I don't deserve, and it's a gift. God is kind, and so in verse 7, what we're being shown is his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what motivated God to do all of this? Well, You have the words right there in the passage. His mercy, his love, his grace, and his kindness. Explicitly stated. And then we get something, while not explicitly stated here, implicit in these verses. Because God has actually done all of this because he is all-powerful. His great power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same incomparable power that has brought us from death to life. That same power has raised you and me from spiritual death and made us alive with Christ. You see, that is what God has done. He has made us alive. If we're Christian believers this morning, he has made us alive. And if you've come and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what God in his grace, through the finished work of Jesus, will do in you, make you alive. God made us alive together with Christ. Because of his mercy and love and grace and kindness and power, He sent Jesus to die so that we might be saved from death and judgment and hell. Jesus' death in our place averts judgment and restores us to right relationship with God. In other words, Jesus brings us out of the condemned world into the blessed world of restored right relationship with God with each other, and with his world. You see, Jesus, in his substitutionary penal atonement, has paid it all. Jesus took what was ours and paid the penalty for it in order to give us what was his. It's what theologians refer to as the great exchange. I think Martin Luther called it the great exchange has been referred to as the double exchange or even the sweet exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In his finished work, Jesus stood in for me and paid it all. Jesus is the rescuer, and he has rescued us. Jesus, God and King, rescues rebels. God made us alive 
I mean, what we have here really is a description of Christian conversion. You see, making us alive indicates imparting or bestowing the gift of life. And not only that, but we're told in these verses that we have been raised. If we are in Christ, we have been raised and seated with Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead and God has made us alive and has raised us up with him and has seated us with Jesus so that we can enjoy the everlasting kindness of God now and forever. So the ground of all of this is God's mercy and love and grace and kindness and power. And the goal is the display and promotion and remembrance and enjoyment of his grace and kindness and great goodness now and forever. You see, this language of being raised and seated is victory language. Because Jesus has won the victory Now listen to me. We need to stress that all of this comes to us from our being joined to Jesus Christ. All of this is in Christ Jesus. It comes to us in no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And in verses 8 through 10, the whole of our salvation is ascribed to God alone. Come with me to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in that workmanship there has the force of masterpiece. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, this total transformation of our condition is all of grace. The free and undeserved mercy of God. It is a free gift, Paul tells us. And it was entirely the work of God. We didn't do it. It was not because of our works. Everything here in this passage describes what has happened to us, not what we have done. Salvation does not come from us. It is God's gift. We do not achieve it. We receive it through faith. Salvation and new life are a free gift given to those who trust in Jesus. So if you've come this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, what's the call to you? Respond by trusting him. Simple personal trust in Jesus, who he is, God and King, and what he's done in your place. That he lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die. That he forgives you and restores you to right relationship. Fly to him, go to him, trust him. The only appropriate response is to trust Jesus. And although the focus in these verses is on salvation, Salvation being a gift, the grace of God. Biblically, it is true to say, and we must say, that both salvation and faith come to us as a gift from God. Repentance and faith themselves are the gift of God. So we can't hold up repentance and faith as some kind of work. They are the gift of God to us. Also, And so by the gift of faith, we receive and accept God's gift of salvation. In other words, it's all God. 
And therefore, the good works in verse 10 are not the road in, but the road out. We have already seen that good works are not the ground or the means of our salvation. We are not saved because of our works. We're saved because of Jesus and his finished work. Not because of our own works. But as those who have been saved by grace through faith. Right? The, the wonderful solas. Uh, that, that are often posted around Desert Springs. Around the building. Right? We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. As revealed in the Bible alone. To the glory of God alone. And as those who have been saved by grace through faith, we demonstrate or we show that reality in our lives, in good works that God preordained that we should walk in. Again, keeping the gospel central because God is the one who has saved us by his grace and God is the one who has prepared these good works for us to walk in and God is the one who gives us the grace to walk in them. Tim Keller uh, the pastor of Redeemer, New York, sums up the difference between religion on the one hand and gospel on the other very well by saying that religion says this. Religion says, I do, therefore I'm accepted. I do, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted already in Jesus Christ and therefore I do. It is a massive difference. You see, not only am I saved by God's grace, but I live life in a way that pleases him entirely by his grace as well. It's what verse 10 is telling us. God, who made me, has in his grace and mercy made me a new creation in Christ. I am accepted in him already. And now, in his ongoing grace, I am able to do the good works that he has prepared for me to walk in. You see, the indicative always comes before the imperative. Who I am in Christ. Pastor Collis is going to talk about this a little bit later. My identity in Christ, the indicative, who I am, leads into how I live, the imperative or the commands. Uh, so, So let me actually draw from Ephesians on that. Paul says it this way. You are the children of God, right? By grace, yeah? We are the adopted children of God because of the finished work of Jesus. It's the indicative, right? That's who we are. That's our identity. You are the children of God. That comes first. And then the command, so behave as children of God. We are who we are by the grace of God. And we live as who we are by the grace of God as well. Verse 10 tells us that God prepared these good works in the past and has given these good works to us as his gift as well. So our salvation comes from God and these good works come from him also. You see, in and of ourselves, we are not able to fight for godliness or to live a godly life. We are totally dependent upon the grace of God. 
We have to keep the gospel central because if we don't, we're, we're going to get deluded on the one hand and think somehow that we have to do all these good works for salvation. We're going to get it all backwards, right? Or we're going to go kind of crazy legalistic with that uh, and, and wear ourselves out in that. Or we're, we're just going to try and, and white knuckle it and, and we're going to get despondent, we're going to go into despair if we try and do it ourselves. But when we keep the gospel central, we believe the good news of the gospel that we are saved by grace, and we trust in God's grace to live out the implications of the gospel. How am I going to trust and treasure Jesus and love him above all? How am I going to love my brothers uh, in Christ, how am I going to love a lost and, die and dead world? Only by keeping the gospel central. Only by trusting in God's grace to be able to do it. See, these good works, all the implications of the gospel, these good works are his gift. He prepared them and he gives us the grace to walk in them. See, it's all the grace of God. That's why we keep the gospel at the center. The very fact that we no longer walk in the trespasses and sins that we used to walk in, right? Do you see, do you see those two words, beginning and end of this passage, right? Walking in trespasses and sins, and now walking in these good works that God's prepared beforehand. By the grace of God, we no longer walk in the trespasses and sins that we once walked in, and by the grace of God, we now walk in the good works that he has prepared for us. It's all his grace. Well, in the last couple of minutes then, just some, just some, some implications. Very briefly, you'll have to go uh, off with each other and, and study this passage through and think up more. But some implications, well, of course, we should be grateful, right? Jim Packer has this wonderful phrase to sum up the gospel, right? God saves sinners. That's what we've been talking about here. God saves sinners. Sinners, he has, he has rescued us. He has done it all. But listen to me carefully, brothers. Our gratitude should not lead us to now try and live out the Christian life in our own strength. Right? To go and do it for God. I mean, you hear people talk like that, don't you? I'm going to go do it for God. And while they're, they are wonderfully well-meaning, they are incredibly misguided. Right? We, we, don't, we don't go from this gratitude to say, okay, now I'm going to go do it for God, do this whole Christian thing by myself. No, our gratitude should lead us to trust in God's grace, his moment-by-moment grace, to live a life that pleases him in obedience to his word, the Bible. You see, we should be humble. Remembering that our salvation is the gift of God and looking to him for the grace to walk in the good works which he prepared beforehand and thanking him when we do. You see, walking in those good works by his grace and then any time anytime we do walk in that good work saying thank you, thank you, uh, Holy Spirit, it's only you, it's only you. We should be hopeful Because our future now and forever is filled with the grace and the kindness of God. No matter what you're going through right now, what comes in and out uh, during your pilgrimage to the celestial city, we know it's filled with 
the grace and kindness of God now and forever. And, and from verse 10, we should be available, right? Available to God, trusting in his grace to walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Remembering that by God's grace, we fight not for victory, but from victory. You see, this fight for, for, for godliness is a fight that we are supposed to fight. We are meant to be engaged in this. We are to fight for godliness. Just always remembering that that fight for godliness and that godly living is all the wonderful gift of God by His grace. Right? I, this, it, it's, the, it's the wonderful rhythm uh, we see all the way through the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. The Ten Commandments. Remember how the Ten Commandments are introduced? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. That's gospel. Accept it already. Therefore, I do. Psalm 105 for you to read later. The psalmist goes through all these wonderful things, reviewing the history of God's people, showing all the wonderful things that God has done. And then says, God has done all of these, in the last verse says, God has done all of these things so that they might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Keep the gospel central. I am accepted in Jesus already by his grace and by his grace, therefore, I do. Never move on from the gospel. Let's camp out here. Remembering that we're saved by grace and we fight for godliness by grace, right? That's the, river, that's the rhythm of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we love to quote that to each other. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oftentimes we stop there, but we mustn't stop there. We have to go on in those verses. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How will we be the men that God tells us to be in his word? How will we be the husbands that God tells us to be? How will we be the dads that God tells us to be? Who lead our wives and children? Who love them? Who lay down our lives for them? How will we be those men? How will we organize our lives around Jesus' mission the way that he tells us to be? All of the things that Pastor Carlos is going to now unpack for us in the rest of the day. Only by the grace of God. And that's why we've got to fight for the gospel. That's why we've got to keep the gospel central in this fight for godliness. We have to remember that God is sufficient. We are not, but he is. In Christ, we have been rescued and restored to right relationship with him. We're imputed with his righteousness, and he gives us the grace to live godly lives. You see, from this former condition to this present position, we're at our closest point with God because of his grace, positionally. Restored to right relationship with him, adopted as his children, which means he is our delight. Our joy, our satisfaction, our happiness, we get to enjoy him forever. Augustine called God's grace sovereign joy. His his language for God's grace was sovereign joy. It's what enabled him to turn from all of the fruitless joys in his life that he once pursued and held so dear. It's what enabled him to smash the idols of the heart. Pleasure, acceptance, satisfaction, whatever it was. To smash all of those idols of the heart. 
and to replace them with Jesus by his grace. Right? So that Jesus becomes more dear to us than sin had once been. And so that relying on his grace, we fight for godliness. You see, we are restored to right relationship, accepted in Jesus. We are God's children. That's who we are. And therefore, by his grace, we live that way. Relying on his grace in this fight for godliness. One Puritan prayer puts it this way. Comfort me by showing me that in myself I am a dying, condemned wretch. But in Christ I am reconciled and live. That in myself I find insufficiency and no rest. But in Christ there is satisfaction and peace. That in myself I am feeble and unable to do good. But in Christ I have ability to do all things. That's keeping the gospel central. How do we do it? Relying on God's grace. Why do we do it? Because it's the only way for conversion and for Christian living.